following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. We can turn your Bibles to Romans 13. Romans chapter 13. We're going to finish out the chapter today by looking at verses 11 through 14. So, no slides today, so you're going to have to pay attention. I've got a pretty simple outline today, so pay attention, take your own notes. Um, but, but we'll be at verses 11 through 14 today. But before we read the text, uh, most of you know that, that I really enjoy football. I, li- I like to watch football, like to follow it. And uh, part of what makes football such a fun sport is, is that every game is really important. Because the season is short. It's a very short season compared to other sports. And so, football fans have their own level of crazy. You know, you watch a football game and, you know, they all, the cameras always love the guy. You know, it's five degrees in Buffalo and he's out there without his shirt on and, you know, bills across his chest. Uh, something like that. Or, or they love the, you know, the crazy fan who's got an awesome costume. Right, so it's a Raiders game, and there's this guy, and you know he's got this full outfit on as a Raider. He's got armor and a sword and all this crazy stuff. And you look at that guy's face is painted, and you think that guy's nuts. Yeah, he spent all sorts of money on that thing. He spent all sorts of time getting it together, and and he's having a good time. He is fired up. He's crazy. And. Uh, a few years ago, it, and it's a whole other level if you, if you actually get to go to a game, you know, go to an NFL game or a major college game. And So a few years ago, I had the opportunity when we lived in Michigan to go watch uh, my team, the Iowa Hawkeyes, uh, play at the Big House where, where uh, Michigan plays in Ann Arbor. And, um, and so we went, and it was a fascinating experience. And uh, the Hawkeyes weren't very good that year, so I wasn't really expecting them to win, and they, they didn't. But, but it, was a, it was a fun experience. I remember we parked, and, and, and then we were walking to the stadium, and we were going past these fields of people tailgating. Now, when you think of tailgating, you know, these people, they're not just sitting in the bed of their pickup truck eating a sandwich. No, these people, I mean, they have got full outdoor kitchens that pop out of the back of their pickup truck. And everything is covered in, in, in the colors of Michigan and decals everywhere. They've got tents and all sorts of stuff, and they've got huge meals. It is a big, big, expensive, fun ordeal. And so we walked past these fields full of people, and then we got in line to go into the stadium. Now, now the big house holds 110,000 people. It is a massive place. And so we're standing in line and with, with all these people dressed in their Michigan gear. And I'll never forget this one Hawkeye fan comes, you know, dressed in this ridiculous costume, and he comes, like, bouncing through everyone doing Hawkeye cheers. He's all alone. You know, there's tens of thousands of Michigan fans, and he's just going nuts. And I thought, this guy's crazy. He looked ridiculous. He sounded ridiculous. And he was all alone. But he was having a good time. He was fired up. And, uh, and so, and that's because, you know, in college, again, there's only seven home games a season. So season ticket holders, they plan all year for those seven days. 
You know, they, 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 they plan their, their, their tailgating. They, they, they plan their costume. They, they, they get together with their friends and talk about who's bringing what and who's bringing this for their tailgating party. And they buy all this food. And so game day is a big deal. There's only seven of them a year. And they are ready. And today's text declares that we as Christians also have a really big day ahead. Jesus is coming again. And you're going to see Jesus in glory. It's going to be the biggest day of your life when you see Jesus face to face. So get excited. And this passage tells you to get ready. Look at what it says. It says in Romans 13 verse 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, this is such an encouraging, hopeful, practical, and, and really convicting passage. And so very simply, it challenges you to live today like glory awaits tomorrow. You should be excited for the return of Christ. You should be ready. And it should change everything about you. Now, if that's going to happen, you, you must obey three challenges that I want to give you from this passage. And so the first challenge in verses 11 and 12 is that, that you must wake up to what is coming. Wake up to what is coming. So, so notice that verse 11 begins with a simple command. It says, do this. Now, you might wonder, well, do what? Well, everything that Paul has commanded in chapters 12 and 13. Now, Paul has challenged us to do some very important, very significant things. He's, he's challenged us to present our bodies a living sacrifice to God. He's challenged us to use our gifts to edify the church. He's challenged us to love our neighbor, to serve our neighbor, to, to get along well. And he's challenged us to obey the government. Now, why should you do all of that? Well, the answer is, is because, he says there in verse 11, because you know the time. Something really important is coming. Something big is happening. It's bigger than anything else going on in your life. And specifically, Jesus is coming again. And you will be transformed. So, so look at what he says there in verse 12. At the beginning of the verse, he says, The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Now, the world feels very dark, doesn't it? It's been that way ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. Now, the world broke the day that Adam and Eve sinned, and, and all of our suffering began. And most importantly, Sin separated us from God. We, we cannot enjoy a, a perfect relationship with God and we, we've been cut off from, from the glorious grace of His presence ever since. But praise God that He says here that, that the night will not last forever. 
He says, the day is near. And Jesus is coming again. And he will fix all that is broken. Now, Jesus is going to create a world without any suffering, any sorrow, any disappointment, any pain or death. But most importantly, verse 11 says that God will change you. He says there, he says in verse 11, that your salvation is nearer than when you believed. So, so he says there that, that Jesus is coming again, and when he, becomes again, when he comes again, you will be fully saved. Now, you might wonder, well, what in the world does he mean by that? I mean, haven't I already been saved? Now, I want to be very clear in setting this up that there is no process to being born again. The moment you believe the gospel, the moment you receive Christ, God forgives all of your sins. You are joined to Christ. You are made His child. God reserves a place in heaven for you and it will always be yours. And all of that is instantaneous. There's no process to it. So if you are saved, there was a moment in time where you went from being under the wrath of God to being under His grace. You went from impending hell to impending heaven. So, so all of that is true. All of that happens in a moment. But I think we all understand as well that we're still sinners. And your body, like it or not, is far from perfect as well. So in a sense... You have not yet received your full salvation. You don't yet have everything that God has in store for you. But the day is near. But Jesus will come again, and Romans 8.23 says that when you see Jesus, He will redeem your body. He will make it perfect. No more aches and pains. No more sickness. No more death. And most importantly, when you see Jesus, He is going to eradicate every speck of sin, every sinful desire from your heart. You will love people perfectly. You will be full of righteousness. And it's going to be incredible. So, so I want all of us to understand that God made you for that day. God, God didn't make you for this world or for this life. He, he made you for that. So, so everything in your life today is either preparation for the day that you see Jesus or a distraction from getting ready for the day that you see Jesus. Your destiny, your greatest hope, and, and your unimaginable joy are all awaiting you in the presence of Christ. So get your eyes off this world. Put them on the next. And, and, and don't let any passion or any priority distract you from the fact that Jesus is coming and you need to be ready to meet the Lord. So wake up and understand that. And from there understand that this transformation is very near. It is not far. It is near. So, so notice here that, that verses 11 and 12 make three statements about the nearness of Christ's return. So again, he says... He says, do this knowing the time. And then he says, first of all, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. 
For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. And then he says the night is almost gone. And the day is near. So, so think about the fact. And, 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 and we talk this way. All, right, all the time. But, but I, I mean, come to grips with reality. That you could be in the presence of Jesus before this service closes. The trumpet could sound and you could be looking Jesus in the face. That's incredible. Now, now you might think, well, 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 but how could Paul say that, that, that Jesus' return is near and, and it's been almost 2,000 years since, since he said that? Was Paul wrong? Well, the New Testament authors, I, I think, certainly hoped that Jesus would return during their lifetimes. And I think you might even be able to say that they expected Jesus to return during their lifetimes. But, but they also understood that it could be a while. Yeah, after all, I mean, Paul talks oftentimes about his own death. So it's not as if Paul ever said, Jesus is coming during my lifetime. He understood that he probably would die before Jesus came back. And, and as well, uh, Peter warned that God's timeline doesn't always match our own. I think it's worth our time to turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 just to deal with this question because it does challenge potentially the, the accuracy of, of Scripture. So 2 Peter chapter 3, because Peter deals with that very question. Where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come back yet? And so he gives us the answer, or, or how we ought to think about that, in 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 3. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? Where is He? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue just as it was from the beginning of creation. Uniformitarianism. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God is clear there that it might be a while. What, what is near to God is not the same as what is near to us because a thousand years to Him is like the blink of an eye because He is eternal. So when Paul says that the day is near, he doesn't mean that it's going to happen on your timeline or mine or on his own timeline. No, what he means is that the return of Christ is imminent. In other words, nothing else has to happen in God's plan of redemption before Jesus comes back. It is the next event in God's timeline. And again, it could happen at any moment. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3, 
For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child. Now wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus came today? And that would be so great. But of course, it's also a sobering reality. So teenagers... You know, you you tend to just assume you've got your whole life ahead of you. You've got years. But the truth is, is that you may not. And none of us are guaranteed another year, another month, or even another hour. James says your life is like a vapor. It appears for a short time and then vanishes away. Now, we don't like to think that way. We all like to think that we got decades ahead of us. But we all have to face the reality that life could be over at any moment. Whether because Jesus comes back or death comes. And so because of that, you need to be ready at all times. And verse 11 uh, again says, it says, it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Now, Now some of you you like to wake up really slowly in the morning. You know, I mean, you, you hit, hit the snooze on your alarm clock four or five times, and you kind of stumble slowly to the kitchen, sip on your coffee. It takes a long time for you to get going in the morning, and for some of you, that process does not begin until the sun has been up for a very long time. Now, you are not the person that Paul has in mind in this passage. In the ancient world, people got up with the sun, like all godly people do, right? <laughs> right? Start a controversy here. And they didn't spend forever getting ready in the morning. No, there's a, um, one of the commentaries I read, he quotes this guy, Jerome Carcopini. He wrote a book on ancient Rome, and he says in the ancient Roman world, there was practically no interval between leaping out of bed and leaving the house. Getting up was a simple, speedy, instantaneous process. That is every dad's dream. (laughs) Get up, put on your shoes, and we're gone. Right? I mean, none of this messing around. And and that's how God tells us to get ready for the return of Christ. Think of the parable of the ten virgins. Jesus warned, don't wait until the trumpet sounds to get ready for for the bridegroom to come. He says, have your lamp full of oil, your wick trimmed, so that when it's time to go, you are ready to go. So are you ready to meet the Lord? Are you ready to meet the Lord? Some of you have never received Christ as your Savior. And you're focused on other things. You, you think you've got plenty of time to get right with God. It's just not really that important to you. But you don't know how much time you have. And so don't gamble with your soul. If you have questions, there's things you don't understand or, or, or things that you need to get figured out before you can receive Christ, that then today, get answers. And if you know that you need to be saved, you know that you need to receive Christ, then today, this moment, call out to the Lord to save you. Don't wait. You need to be ready. Wake up. Now maybe you know that you're going to heaven. 
But you also know that you would be deeply embarrassed to meet Christ in the air today. Have you ever had a surprise guest knock on your door? You know, you're, you're still in your pajamas. It's 10 o'clock in the morning. Your house is a wreck. And you are devastated that this friend is standing at the door of your house. And if the trumpet sounded right now, would you feel the same way to meet the Lord in the air? Embarrassed by the sins that you're tolerating. Embarrassed by the la- your lack of spiritual progress. Embarrassed by, by how you have squandered the, the, the spiritual gifts and opportunities that God has given you for ministry. I remember once a professor in college saying that, that, that live your life in such a way that when it's your time to die, the only thing you have to worry about is dying. And the same would be true for preparing to meet the Lord at the rapture. Live your life every day, every moment of the day, so that if the trumpet sounds, there's no regret. You can just rejoice in the presence of Jesus. So so the first challenge here is to wake up. The day is near. don't, Don't live your life just stuck in all the other stuff and junk and distracted from the return of Christ. Jesus is coming. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be better than anything else you have going on. But you have to be ready. So wake up. So the question is, well, how do you do that? How do you prepare well? Well, the second challenge I want to give is you must replace darkness with light. You must replace darkness with light. So so notice what Paul goes on to say in in the second part of verse 12 and into verse 13. He says, therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Do you feel Paul's urgency there? Again, the biggest event of your life could happen at any moment. You could be looking Jesus in the eye before I finish preaching. Now yes, God is love. right? God is absolutely love. He is full of grace. Jesus calls you His friend. But Jesus is also holy. And and you don't want to meet the Lord with with your hair in tangles, stinky breath, and and egg on your face. No. When you meet the Lord, you want to meet Him as holy as possible. So how do you get there? Well, 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 three ideas stand out to me in these two verses. First of all, if you're going to be ready to meet the Lord, you have to rely on the grace of God. You have to rely on the grace of God. This is not just about you making yourself a better person. So so don't miss the fact that verse 12 doesn't just tell you to replace the deeds of darkness with the deeds of light. Instead, what does he say? He says, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And as well, verse 14 says that we are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we are going to talk uh, here in a moment about practical holiness. You, you need to eradicate sin and, and, and pursue godliness in your life. And verse 13 is going to get very specific about how you do that. But, but understand as well that the only way that you will really make progress 
towards being ready for the coming of the Lord is if you pursue holiness through the power of God's grace. You have to put on the armor of God. The armor of light. You need Christ. The question is, well, how do you do that? I mean, that sounds good, right? Put on the armor of light. Put on Jesus. What does that look like? Well, let's think for a moment about the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. That's a pretty familiar passage uh, to, to probably just about everyone in this room. And so God says to you that, that if you are, that it, it, he calls you to be ready for the attacks of Satan, right? To, to be ready to stand for God. So, so how do you get ready to stand? Well, he tells you to take the armor of God. And then what does the armor of God consist of? It consists of truth righteousness, readiness to share the gospel, faith, salvation, scripture, and prayer. Now, we tend to think of those things as the end goal of godliness, right? Like if I'm godly, a godly the, the, the goal of godliness is that I would read my Bible every day, believe the truth, and be righteous. So, so and, and in part, that's true. I mean, all those things, all those pieces of the armor of God, they are important marks of mature godliness. But you know what's so interesting is that Ephesians 6 is not just saying that those things are marks of godliness. He says as well that they are means of the grace of God so that you can stand and pursue further godliness. So so we don't just read our Bible because it's right. Reading your Bible is not just merely the end goal. No, it's not just, I've achieved godliness because I spent you know, five hours in prayer this week. No. These are the means of grace that God has given to enable you to stand and fight. So, so don't just read your Bible and pray because it's the right thing to do. Do it because you need God. And you need His grace. You know, don't do it just so you can check it off your list. Do it because you are hungry and desperate for God. And you desire the food of His Word. So if you're going to live today like glory awaits tomorrow, you can't just jump to Christian duty. Right? I mean, you have to swim in the sea of gospel grace. You've got to look to the, to the, to the means of grace that God has given you. In His Word, prayer, the church. In, in, in walking in a life of obedience to His will, you need to rely on those means of grace so that you have the equipment you need to be ready. And, 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 so, and so rely on the grace of God. And then the second challenge of verses 11 and 12, or of 12 and 13, is get specific. Get specific. So if you're going to live today like glory awaits tomorrow, you must be different. You have to shine in the darkness. Now yes, you should be full of grace. You should be a person of humility and love and kindness. But but understand that you will never be, if your life never stands out in a dark world, it never convicts an unbeliever. It's never resisted by ungodliness. Then you're not ready. You have to manifest the light. And it's easy for us to sit here in church and say, yeah, I want to reflect the light. I want to serve God. I bless, you know, bless Him and be what I ought to be. 
But you can't just talk in theory. You have to get specific about the sins of the darkness. And and notice that verse 13 mentions six specific sins of the darkness that we need to get rid of. It mentions carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality, strife, and jealousy. Now, the first four of those sins are all what we we could categorize as sins of the night. So so when you take those first four sins together, they they describe a a drunken orgy, really, is is the picture that that he is painting. And so it describes there a a narcissistic, lustful, selfish, and, and disgusting way of life, of partying. Now, it might feel really good. It's fun to just feed on your lusts and do what you feel like and and not think about consequences. But God says that these kinds of sins are evil and they have no place in a Christian's life. So I want to be very clear that a Christian should never get drunk. The Bible is very clear about that. It forbids drunkenness. Now, I know a lot of Christians want to mess with that line, but the Bible is clear. Christians are to be alert. We are to be sober-minded. We are to be full of the Spirit, not dulled by alcohol or any other type of drug. And as well, he forbids here carousing, or the idea would be loose partying, again, that is based in sensuality and and a desire to fulfill my sinful lusts. So, just stay away. Stay away from any kind of context that is designed for people to just feed on their lusts and do what feels good. And Christians are disciplined people. People of holiness. So stay away from those things. And of course, he also adds there, Um, sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Now, now those are two sins that oftentimes go hand in hand with with drunkenness and carousing. And and again, don't make this more complicated than it is. You can get online and find all sorts of nonsense where people are trying to justify things that God calls are sinful. Now, God is clear in His Word that, that sexual passion is a good gift of God for the context of marriage. But in any other context, it's lust. And God says it is wrong. And you need to drive it out of your life. So, so, so don't, don't go there. And I hope, I mean, I hope that for the vast majority of people in this room, that, that those first four sins are things that aren't even really a, a major temptation in your life. That you don't wake up in the morning thinking, oh, I really want to go to a drunken orgy. (laughs) Now, now, in all seriousness, if that is a challenge for you, then we want to help you by the grace of God get past that. But but that said, the last two sins in this list are ones that probably hit a lot closer to home for just about everyone. The last two he mentions in that same list are strife and jealousy. That doesn't seem to fit, right? That's in a whole other category. But but that's he puts them right here. I mean, and and, and they are very significant. And sadly, many Christians find themselves in constant conflict 
They've got tension with this person over here. They're having an argument with this person over here. And, and, and there's just constant strife. Broken relationships in their lives. They're angry at this person. Angry at that person. Now, again, not, not all conflict is your fault. Right? I mean, you can try, try, try. Sometimes other people are just fools and, and arrogant and there's nowhere you can go. And as well, the truth cuts and the world is going to hate Christ's disciples. So, so we are going to face hostility with the world as we stand for truth and speak the truth. But, but if you are in constant strife, especially with other Christians, then you really need to think about why. And, and don't just immediately jump to, well, I got a bunch of morons in my life. No, you need to focus on yourself. I mean, where is, is there pride in my heart? Am I unthoughtful in how I speak? Am I prioritizing the right things? Focus on yourself. And think about why is strife just always following me wherever I go? It shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't be that hard for Christians to live in unity. So, so drive the strife out. And, and, then a, and the same goes for jealousy, or, or you could add to that envy. You know, again, Christian love rejoices with those who rejoice. It, it does, it's not jealous of them. It doesn't envy what they have. It rejoices with those who rejoice. So don't excuse jealousy. Don't tolerate it. Eradicate it from your life. So Paul challenges us here to get specific. You know, don't just talk in generalities about being ready to meet the Lord. If you are going to live today like glory awaits tomorrow, you need to identify specific sins in your life, specific manifestations of the darkness, and drive them out. But, but to complement that, I have to add that, that not only do you need to get specific, you do need to get creative too. And, and, I, and, I, and what I, all I mean by that is I just simply want to note that verse 13 is not intended to give you an exhaustive list. Like if you don't have any of these six sins, you're good and you're ready to meet the Lord. No, no, there are plenty of other ways that you could be tolerating sin. So don't look at a list like this in a legalistic manner. Just if I've done these things, I'm okay. No, instead... You want to truly be ready to meet Christ. And so, I would urge you to pray, Spirit of God, search my heart. Help me to see the sins that maybe I don't even recognize. And help me by your grace to drive them out. So, so by the grace of God, replace darkness with light. Be like Jesus. Don't be like the world. And then finally, if you're going to live today like glory awaits tomorrow, the third challenge is that you need to prepare for victory. You need to prepare for victory. So, so look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This is a great verse. This is one of my favorite verses in the entire New Testament when it comes to the practical work of sanctification or spiritual growth. So, so first of all, God challenges you, become like your Savior. 
put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, well, first of all, as I kind of mentioned already, don't forget that if you are saved, there is a sense in which you have already put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your Savior. You belong to Him. You are a new creature in Christ. So so you've already received all the power, all the life that you need. And and so you have everything in Christ that you need to pursue holiness. And that's really important to remember when you think about a passage like this. Because this is a passage, like the challenge to be ready to meet the Lord, can sound utterly impossible. I mean, I would venture to guess there's some of you, you've sat there the entire time this morning sort of discouraged thinking, Pastor, there is no way, no way that I could ever be ready to meet the Lord in the air. That, that I could stand before Him unashamed, glad to see Him. I mean, I'm going to be embarrassed, sad, disappointed, no matter what. So I even tried. Now, Let's be clear, you will never be fully ready to meet the Lord. Right? It's like when you go on a long trip. You know, when you go on a long trip. You know, I don't, you know, you always feel like you forgot something. No matter what. So, so, so we're never going to be fully ready. There's going to be sin in your life. There's going to be things that you're ashamed of when you stand before the Lord. And so praise God that He is full of grace. Jesus is your advocate. He's your friend. He's not a hostile judge. So do not despair. Jesus sees your effort. He sees that you are striving by the grace of God to please Him. He sympathizes with your sin struggles. And He is full of grace. So, So understand all of that. But He also demands that you pursue change. And He commands you here to put on the power that you have received to put on Christ. So you have to appropriate, you have to take advantage of the new life that you have received. And as I said earlier, that means that you need to use the means of grace that God has provided you. You need to study the Scriptures. Pray. You need to take advantage of the fellowship of God's people. And by His grace, you need to obey His will. You need to Walk in line with the Spirit. And James 4 promises that if you do those things, if you walk in in, in obedience to God's will, you you seek to drive sin out of your life, rely on the grace of God, it says that if you draw near to God, He promises that He will draw near to you. His grace will be near. And and, and He's going to come not just with a little teaspoon of grace. He's going to come with grocery bags of it. And Christ will empower you to lay aside the deeds of darkness and, and, and to become like Himself. So I know, you know, there's some of you in this room that have some very significant, very deep sin struggles in your life. And you hate it. You hate your sin. And, and you are frustrated constantly that you're not changing as fast as you would like to change. Now, there's others in this room that you struggle with constant feelings of doubt and discouragement and despair. And you're terrified by the idea of meeting the Lord. 
because you can't imagine ever being ready. But remember today that if you are saved, you are in Christ. And you have put on the Lord Jesus Christ and and you can practically put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You can become like Him. So don't get discouraged. Don't spend your whole Christian life looking back. Look forward. Trust the grace of God and run to Jesus. And then become like your Savior. Put on His his practical character and, and spirit. Imitate the humility of Jesus and the love of Jesus. Imitate His faith, His obedience to the Father. Be holy as He is holy. Now again, you're not going to get there perfectly this side of glory. You're going to have a lot of warts when you meet the Lord. Now something will be out of place, but Jesus sees your heart, He sees your effort, and He will be pleased. You can please the Lord. So put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Live today like glory awaits tomorrow. And then he gives a second challenge in verse 14. He says, starve the darkness. Starve the darkness. He tells you there at the end of verse 14, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Now, The idea behind the Greek word that's translated provision here is simply the idea of feeding something, which should perk all of our attention because it's getting close to to lunchtime. And uh, I like food and you like food. and, And so we understand very well this idea here. And so the idea is, is that when you feed something, it gets bigger, right? You eat a lot of ice cream, you're gonna grow, all right? Not in a good way. And if you don't eat anything at all, you're going to shrink. So, so the idea here is simply that, that if you feed the flesh, if you feed your sin nature, then your sin nature, your, your flesh, is going to grow in power and influence over your life. But if you starve it, if you starve your flesh by, by not giving it the things that promote it and grow its influence, then it will grow weaker and less influential. Now that concept is very simple, right? We, we all can get that, but, but it is so easy to overlook. So I think a really practical just application here is, is in the media that you take in, the things you listen to, the things you read, the things you watch. Now any godly Christian, right? any godly Christian is going to say that I should not watch things that God says are sin. That I need to obey God. All right? We, we get that. But, but, but very often, the only question that we want to ask is what's wrong with it? Tell me from the Bible why I can't do that. And if someone can't tell you from the Bible why you shouldn't do it, you think it's okay. But, but God says that that's not the only thing that matters. I mean, even if you you can technically justify doing a certain thing or or taking a certain thing into your heart, you also need to be asking this question. Will doing this feed godliness or will it feed the flesh? You know, you're going to watch something on TV, listen listen to something. Will watching this make me love Jesus more or will doing this deaden my love for Jesus? and make me love the world. 
And that's really important that you're honest with yourself, right? So for example, again, I mean, there might not be anything that is technically wrong with a certain movie. But it is full of lusty women. I mean, just be honest with yourself, men. Is that going to help? Is watching that going to help you cultivate an exclusive love for your spouse that honors the Lord? Is it going to teach you? Is it going to help you to starve sinful passions? Or is it going to feed the flesh? You have to be honest about what you are feeding in your heart. You want to starve the flesh, not feed it. Or think about your conversation. Again, there, there might not be anything technically wrong with the conversation that you have with your friends or your family. You're speaking the truth. You're not telling any lies. Everything you say is true. But, but does your conversation feed gratitude and thankfulness? Does it cause you to love people and have a humble heart towards them? Or does your conversation feed bitterness, critical spirits, self-pity, and all sorts of other sins? I mean, if it does, you are making provision for the flesh. You are feeding ungodly desires. And it needs to stop. Now, and, and then, of course, this principle would also apply to, to all sorts of sin struggles and habitual issues that we have. You know, I mean, the more you commit a sin, the easier it becomes to commit it without guilt or, or with a hardened conscience. You know, so the more kids, the more you talk back to your parents, the less it will bother you. Married people, the more you just bicker at each other and throw sarcastic, harsh comments towards your spouse, the less you will think about it and the more comfortable you will feel doing it. You know, the more you look at pornography, the less it's going to bother you. And frankly, the more you're going to want and, and, the, and the more dark stuff that you will want. Now folks, I mean, all of that is, is simple, right? We, we can all grasp these things. But, 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 but it's not just enough that you grasp it. You need to put that in practice. If you want to live today like glory awaits tomorrow, you have to starve the flesh. Don't feed it. Kill it. John Owen said, you know, kill sin or sin will kill you. And so be honest with yourself. Where are you feeding the flesh? You know, or is that question even on your mind? If you are just living your life without serious doses of Christian discernment, then, then you're probably not doing very well in this area. So practice discernment. Do you invite godly counsel? You know, or do you think that anyone who ever challenges you is a legalistic, judgmental person that you need to eradicate from your life? You know, godly people want to be pushed. They want people to, to press them on, on, on areas where they are not living like they should. And so are you doing that? And are you striving to starve sin and be like Jesus? You know, again, Jesus is coming again. And you're going to be like him if you're, in, if you're saved. 
You are going to spend all of eternity in the presence of God in unimaginable joy and happiness, and it is all going to be anchored in the holiness and beauty of God. That is your destiny. And it's better than anything you have in this world. So, So don't waste your time here chasing after something less than that. Don't chase cheap, godless imitations of true glory. No, live today like glory awaits tomorrow. Put off sin, put off the darkness, and put on the light. Live a life that pleases the Lord. Prepare to stand before Him and to do so with unashamed joy, gratitude, and gladness. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the hope that we have of Your soon return. Oh Lord, we pray that You would come today We pray that Jesus would come and fix this broken world and bring us to himself. Lord, I pray for any who are here who do not yet know Christ, that Lord, they would leave today ready to meet the Lord because they have received the Savior. And for those of us who know you, Lord, help us by your grace to to starve the flesh, to put off the deeds of darkness, to put on the works of light, Help us, God, to please you in every respect. And, oh, Lord, give us faith to see past the temptations, the desires, the passions of our flesh, and to see the superior joy and goodness of the presence of God. Help us to hate our sin. Help us to put it off. Help us to please you so that we can stand ready before our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.